This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for May 27th, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, this week we started to hear some positive news about a potential treatment for COVID-19, remdesivir. What did we learn about its efficacy? Steve, this week we heard about the results of a trial of remdesivir conducted by the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. This trial was a large placebo-controlled double-blinded study that looked at the use of remdesivir in adults who had already had COVID-19 and were being hospitalized and tested whether or not it would have an effect on their primary outcome, which was an ordinal scale of symptoms of improvement from one stage to another. This is roughly similar to other studies that have used somewhat different ordinal scales, which look at whether a person is on a positive trajectory or a negative trajectory. They looked at over a thousand patients, randomized to receive either remdesivir or placebo, and followed them to see when they would recover. Recovery was defined as improvement in that ordinal scale, and found that the group that had received remdesivir improved faster than the group that had not. Uh, The recovery time was 11 days for the group that received remdesivir versus 15 days for the group that received placebo. Now, that is very preliminary data because the study had been stopped early. The Data Safety Monitoring Board had looked at the data early on and decided that there was a difference and a significant enough difference so that patients in the placebo group should be receiving remdesivir as well. That means that we don't have the full data set. But at the time that we looked at it, it appeared that there might be an improvement in death and that fewer people died who were in the remdesivir arm. And we have yet to collect the full data set and we'll find out in the end how much improvement we actually see and whether or not there really is an improvement in the death rate. Eric, I think you raise a real challenge for us in the community. When the DSMB met and stopped the study because of efficacy, that was a surprise. That led to immediate action, given that there was a benefit for patients infected with COVID-19 disease at a time when we had no treatment and a high mortality. The data from this DSMB review, which were partial data, The study team was blinded. It was half of those enrolled at the time, yet there was a signal of benefit that was strong enough to stop the study and then on May 9th to lead to the FDA providing an EUA, emergency use authorization for this agent. And we as a community have been struggling with how do we use this agent over the last two to three weeks without data to tell us how it works and the nature of the side effects. The investigators are also in a challenging position because the DSMB reviewed half the data and the study is ongoing and it's not yet unblinded. And I think this is something that we as a community have to reflect is how do we deal with data that are partial, though compelling, and the study is ongoing. And if we wait till the data are completely collected and cleaned and analyzed, that may be another month or two. But the data that we published a few days ago still have elements that many of us want more, as you suggested, Eric, the issue of the mortality. There is a trend, it's suggestive, 
but the data are not yet complete, so we don't know the day 28 final result for the over 1,000 patients enrolled when the DSMB acted on under 500 enrolled. And so I think this is a conundrum that we as a community do have to struggle with because we need information to guide therapy, particularly when there's no known therapy, yet by rushing to engage the data, the data are not yet complete. And I think it's been a challenge for all of us over the last month in caring for our patients, as well as for how do we deploy this agent and use this agent. I applaud the team for moving as quickly as they have, the DSMB, for making rapid action, for the community utilizing that action to translate into how we take care of our patients. But Eric, as you say, how do we now use remdesivir? How much is available? How is it deployed? Many, many questions, even the adverse events are not fully explained or even fully known as the data are completed. So I find this a fascinating predicament that we as a community are in, a refreshing one, but still unsettling given the nature of moving quickly in the shadow of COVID. Yes, Lindsay, I'd add to that, that first, that there are other things that we don't know. In particular, the investigators did collect viral swabs from which you can estimate a crude viral load, and we don't have those data reported yet. That's very important in how convincing the data are in that we're using a direct acting antiviral agent, which really should affect those levels. So we'll see. The other point I'd make in keeping with what you said, Lindsay, is in some ways, this study makes it easier to make clinical decisions, but it also in a way blocks some other research because right now, given this positive result, this trial is unlikely to be repeated. This is probably it for a placebo-controlled trial unless the final data look different. So we are really relying on the quality of this study to drive not only clinical decisions, but also future research. Eric, there is at least one more RCT that has been in progress with remdesivir that we as a community look forward to seeing. Starting a brand new study, I think, is quite difficult with a placebo control for this or any other antiviral when we have evidence of an antiviral demonstrating clinical efficacy. So I do look forward to the other RCT data that hopefully should be available soon in the placebo-controlled format. There are comparative data that we published today that will also be quite informative and is quite informative in looking at five versus 10 days. But I agree with you, the time for placebo-controlled trials of a direct-acting antiviral have to be modified in light of the efficacy data shown here. Have the new data been consistent with prior findings? So that's a really good question, Steve, because there have been other studies of remdesivir including the one that Lindsay just mentioned that we published today, which we'll get back to. But if you look back, the very first large trial was a compassionate use open label study where there really wasn't a good control. So therefore, all we have is an experience. And is this consistent? It probably is. I will say that the treatment of COVID-19 has changed and improved in terms of the supportive therapy. So people are, in general, doing better. So there's a time factor to trying to look at comparing outcomes. And the outcomes weren't measured in the same way as they were in this study. But broadly, these results are consistent. The other study, which we've discussed before, was published a couple of weeks ago in The Lancet, 
which was a study performed in China, an RCT like this one, but because the outbreak had diminished so much in China, the investigators were unable to enroll the full set of patients that was required to give a firm answer. And so the trial in the end was inconclusive, but its results were consistent with the results of this trial. So I don't think we have any reason to be suspicious of these results. It's probably going in the same direction as everything else we've seen. Eric, I think your point is very important to consider, which is the previous trial from China that was a well-designed, well-conducted, randomized controlled trial, placebo-controlled. The findings are consistent with the findings from the ACT study. But since the epidemic ended, which is terrific news, but it means that the trial only enrolled about two-thirds of those they anticipated, they were unable to clearly detect a signal. But the findings are consistent with the ACT trial that we've been talking about. And this speaks to how to interpret the literature and data. An underpowered finding does not a negative result make, but rather needs to be interpreted in light of the parameters in how the trial was set up and the consistency of the findings in the data reported. And I think those data and the ACT data are quite consistent. It does show the importance of control groups because there's a lot of differences in background care that can influence outcome. And without a proper control group, it is very difficult to compare open label treatment across time and space and locale. But I think those two trials, the China trial and the NIH trial, I think are largely consistent and encouraging. It's a clear effect. It shortens time to clinical improvement. Whether or not there's a mortality signal is less clear. So as you say, that sounds encouraging. Are there any issues with remdesivir? Well, there's a huge issue, which is it's only been approved under an EUA, so it's not an approved drug, and it's not in large-scale production, although I hope that the manufacturers have ramped up considerably. And therefore, it's a limited resource right now. So there's still a lot of COVID-19 around, and there is not so much drug. So that creates issues over how we can both best and most fairly distribute this drug and use this resource, assuming that it really is an improvement as it appears to be. We did publish a trial today that helps a little bit, which is a trial comparing a five-day course with a 10-day course of remdesivir. This trial had no placebo control, so we really can't make any conclusions about whether or not the drug works. It's unlike the study that we've been talking about up till now. But in this trial, which was a bit complicated, people were randomized to either five days or 10 days. It was a very large multi-center trial. And most of the patients did receive the full five days or 10 days worth of drug, although some of the people in the 10-day arm had gone home by the time they would have reached the 10 days and stopped receiving the agent. The conclusion of the study was that there really was very little difference between five and 10 days. Now, it's a bit complicated because the groups weren't stratified. And therefore, as it turned out in the randomization, the 10-day group was a little sicker than the five-day group. And so that might favor the five days. But when the investigators tried to correct for the level of illness, it still appeared that five days and 10 days were quite similar to each other. 
Now, that seems like a very technical point, except for what you raised, Steve, the availability of the drug. If we can use it for five days instead of 10 days, that almost doubles the number of patients who can be treated. So given a precious resource, this might be very important. I think that there are several issues with remdesivir that we need to reflect on, and some of which we've alluded to already. The NIH study is not yet complete. You know, we're missing viral load data, how did it impact the virus directly, adverse event data are not clearly available yet by treatment group, severity type of adverse event. And I think that's really important to have better resolution on as we look at using a treatment. The mortality signal is unclear. And as Eric, you alluded to, the timing of use in disease. In the NIH study, there seemed to be the strongest effect in the ordinal scale five category, which is those who are on oxygen and hospitalized. But the numbers are small. These are subgroup analyses. Does it matter if you start the drug early in illness versus late in illness or early in disease severity or late in disease severity? How granular is this endpoint of ordinal scale of hospitalized on or off oxygen or in the ICU or not? It's a very crude scale. It's available intravenous only. What is the right duration? So I think there are many questions, but that's the nature of research, a new treatment in a complicated, highly morbid mortal disease. And so I think the data available are incredibly encouraging, but there are many, many questions that we need answers to and better information on to guide how we treat our patients, when we treat our patients. So I think these data are an important step forward, but we will have lots more discussion in the community about how to use these drugs. Hopefully over the next month, more data will come out that will help guide us. The data available are informative, but leave many questions open. And even the five versus 10 day treatment is very useful given the limited supply of remdesivir. However, that's a manufacturing challenge, although it's always valuable to use less treatment as needed. But even with remdesivir, if you start treatment, you get better and go home. You stop treatment. You don't continue the IV therapy at home. Once you're getting better, you're getting better. So I think these data are encouraging, but lots of questions that we'll have to sort out over the weeks and months ahead, hopefully with high quality data. Lindsay, one of the big questions which you alluded to is the fact that this is an IV drug. And that does create a substantial issue. As you said, antiviral drugs generally work better at the beginning of infection before a lot of the consequences of inflammation have occurred. And in the remdesivir NIH trial, people treated earlier in the disease course appeared to do better than people treated when they already had substantial complications. And that is totally consistent with what we know about other viral illnesses. So that means that with an IV-only drug, which is largely, almost probably exclusively limited to use in hospitalized patients, we have a large pool of patients who are ill but not hospitalized, but maybe heading there, that we'd love to treat. But this doesn't appear to be a good option for them right now. And we're really on the lookout for something that was orally bioavailable and relatively safe that could be used in people who aren't quite as ill, but might become more ill. Eric, I mean, I think that your point's well taken is that shutting down the virus before people get really sick sounds like a good idea. And hopefully we can generate data to establish 
if that is a good idea in this setting, which it should be, but I do like to see evidence that that's true. It's been striking in other studies with antivirals that there hasn't been a significant change in the viral load. Hopefully, when we have the viral load data from the NIH study, we'll see that surrogate behaving appropriately. If it doesn't behave appropriately, it will raise questions about how we develop the appropriate surrogates of response. I also think that another important observation is there still was a significant mortality, six, seven, eight percent in the remdesivir-treated patients. Is that because they were treated too late, or is that we need additional therapies to be able to properly manage our patients? And so I think that I'm not sure we've resolved the question of the best treatment as much as this is a treatment that's helpful, but there's still miles to go before we sleep, given the burden of illness that we're witnessing, even in those who have received maximal courses of this agent. So from everything you're saying, it sounds as if there's room for other treatments. Where do we stand there? Are other treatments in the works? There's certainly many other therapies under consideration. Some of them are really for patients who are ill and hospitalized. A lot of these are anti-inflammatory agents, which carry modest to more severe risks. And therefore, they're really intended for people who are on the more ill side. On the pre-hospital side, though, and orally bioavailable drugs, there are several agents that are being tested. We've learned something about some of them uh, recently. In particular, there's been a lot of work on hydroxychloroquine. Unfortunately, we still don't have the randomized controlled trial that we'd like to see, the large RCT comparable to what we saw in remdesivir for hydroxychloroquine or some of the combination therapies that use hydroxychloroquine. However, there was a report of cardiac problems with this drug and with its combination. This drug is known to increase the QT interval, as is azithromycin, with which it's often combined. And there have been reports of cardiac arrhythmias and other complications due to this drug, which has been widely used in many places. We don't know how important that is and how that compares to any potential benefit. But given that several studies, including one we published, have set the rough parameters around benefit to show that it's not a dramatic benefit at the very least and may not have any benefit at all, um, several groups have issued warnings about the use of the drug. And in fact, the very large study being conducted by the WHO, which had a hydroxychloroquine arm, that arm has been suspended for now. So unfortunately, we may learn a limited amount about that drug. I'd also, going back to a discussion before, the success of remdesivir has a bit of a chilling effect on some other trials. If this holds up in the final results, it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, to include placebo controls in hospitalized patients who would be remdesivir candidates. So that will alter a lot of studies that are either under consideration or perhaps even ongoing right now because the standard of care has changed. You know, as the standard of care changes, Eric, as you say, that is a challenge for research. It's a good challenge to have and research needs to adapt to it. As we make advances, we need to apply them. And the risk benefit of any drug has to be carefully understood. And all medications, even penicillin, have risks and side effects, as does hydroxychloroquine, Eric, as you mentioned. 
So there has to be a benefit to say that the risk is worth it. And that's been a real challenge for hydroxychloroquine is to show evidence of a benefit. And until we have RCT data, it's going to be hard to tease that out in background observational studies. But Steve, there are other complications. There are the inflammatory complications. There are the thromboembolic complications, which all have different treatments that are being looked at, as well as the direct antiviral acting agents. And I think with remdesivir, our real focus is on the direct antiviral activity, which hopefully is the driver of the pathogenesis. So the sooner you can turn off the virus, the sooner you can prevent these downstream complications. However, there is active investigation looking at all of the different downstream complications that some data are available, some will emerge soon, that hopefully will inform us about how to care for these issues when our patients develop them. But ultimately, it would be nice, Eric, as you suggest, that we have an easy oral tablet that we can give at home when someone has early infection before they have illness. So they never develop a significant illness. But that right now is a dream. But the research is marching towards it, I hope. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.